this guy was like, so do you know other people out here? And I said, yeah, like about like 20 other Syracuse grads are out here. And he's like, wow. He's like, that's so much more than when I moved out. And he was like, what's great about that is as you guys sort of move up the ranks together, like you will be the ones to sort of help each other out or tell each other about jobs. Like that network is more so your key to success than, than I am. Welcome back to Angled. I'm here with Tanuke, here super duper love from Philly. Woo-hoo. Today we have Janina hailing from Los Angeles. Can you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. My name's Janina Kuhuka, and I'm a TV writer currently on an HBO Max show that's going to be a reboot of the Pretty Little Liars franchise. And I've worked on a few other shows out here as well, and that's what I do. I'm a writer. Awesome. As we know, actually, okay, why don't you, in your eloquent, amazing way with words, why don't you explain why Janina is so cool and why we wanted to have her here and the whole point and why she's so angled worthy. So yes, we are thrilled to have Janina here today. Janina, thanks just for being here, joining us, sharing your insight. The three of us know each other from undergraduate studies, Syracuse University. And it's just been a really great way for us to reconnect. And Janina, I think with our approach to Angled and the stories that we're looking to tell and the folks that we're planning to interview, we want to know how people have found themselves in certain fields, in certain states, on certain time zones, pursuing different activities and careers. And when it comes to something as specific as TV writing, There are so many twists and turns and different ways that people find themselves into this incredible space. So, of course, you are an intelligent woman, and we'd love to hear how intelligence, drive, ambition, and just everything has taken you from, all these things have taken you from Syracuse University, (laughs) clear across the country to Los Angeles, sunny California, and how you were able to find your approach and find your angle to do what it is that you're doing now. Sure. Well, I guess a good place for me to start probably would go before Syracuse because I'm originally from Houston, Texas. And I, I always say, or I feel like there's a, there's a saying out there, but I always like to say in particular, there, there are two kinds of people that come from Texas. There are those that can't see themselves living anywhere else. And there are those that can't wait to leave. But I was certainly someone that couldn't wait to leave. And so I think as young as maybe sometime in middle school or high school, I set my sights on New York, um, New York City to be exact, and wanted to go to NYU initially. So I I set my sights on NYU and like other surrounding schools, specifically in New York City at a pretty young age. And by the time I got to college application time, having the conversation with my parents versus, you know, what I'd been aspiring to in my head turned out to have a different outcome, which was that NYU's campus is pretty spread out. It's not like a singular controlled space within New York City and having, I think, never like been further at that point than 
and maybe North Carolina. (laughs) My parents just weren't comfortable with me going to school like that. So the compromise was, you know, why don't you look at some schools in upstate New York that, you know, are are a bit more concentrated and and controlled in terms of their environment. And if you're still so gung-ho about New York, we feel more comfortable with you potentially moving there at 21 than, than we do at 17. So that's where Syracuse was a school that was always on my mind. But I think like NYU was sort of the dream that was dashed. <laughs> but, but yeah, so that was how Syracuse ended up as the caveat. And what was interesting about this, that New York City of it all for me was I did end up getting an internship at Syracuse between my junior and senior year in New York City. And I hated it. Oh. I mean, not the internship. It was a really great internship, but I, I hated the experience. And it was like, wow, like, I mean, I guess <laughs> I would have figured this out, you know, had I really pushed towards that NYU dream. But I think, uh, keep in mind, what was I was a 19, 20 at the time. Yeah. But I, you know, got there and I think the rose-colored glasses version of New York that someone who knows nothing about the East Coast has was not what I encountered. It was dirty and people were mean and I just did not like it. So senior year, I was sort of having a a crisis of consciousness of sorts, which is like the whole reason I'm here. The whole reason I like came to this school is like to move there. I don't even want to move there. And so I really utilized, I was one of those folks that, that was in and out of the sort of school alumni offices, just asking for advice And I think at this point, I didn't know I wanted to write specifically, but I did know I wanted to work in the industry. Mm. And they said, the advisors I saw, they were all like, well, the girth of the industry is in LA. Like, I I mean, it's in New York, but it's mostly in LA. And maybe you consider moving out there. And so I really weighed the pros and cons of, of moving to an LA versus New York fresh out of graduation and felt like to be on the come up, quote unquote, it was like, not comfortable, but just like, just conducive to, to a life that's less hard. (laughs) If you did it in LA, I was like, at least in LA, if I'm broke and like struggling, you can like go to the beach. (laughs) Like, I don't know what the new, right. You can rejuvenate yourself by getting a little bit of sun and yeah, some water waves and some ions and all that good stuff. (laughs) I don't know. I, at the time I didn't know what the New York equivalent of that. And there's just something that just Mm. was very in my mind, I think really scary and daunting about like <laughs> moving to New York with nothing versus moving to LA with nothing. So I actually, the decision to move to LA, considering how determined I was to like get to Syracuse at 18 as a path to New York City, the LA pivot wasn't something I really decided on until maybe like a few months before graduation. Wow. Which at the time felt very like, I don't know, like I didn't even consider applying to college in LA. Like that's how not on my radar it was. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. graduated from Syracuse. I had like maybe two months before graduation sort of set my mind to maybe LA's where it's at. Moved back home after graduation, got and I got two jobs, <laughs> two like different like waitressing jobs. I got one at like this like local spot that I had worked at in high school and like seasonally in, in college. And then I went and got, do you know, you guys have Dave and, well, we had Dave and Buster's in LA. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I got like a second, like my day job was the local restaurant. And then I would switch over to Dave and Buster's at night. And I like specifically chose that because it's like, 
it's like fun. I was like, if I'm going to be doing this twofold, like, let me at least do it at a place for like, once the shift wraps, we can just like <laughs> go play games. <laughs> you can play ski ball and <laughs> play air hockey. It's funny. Like looking back at that David Buster shot, like it was stressful, but it was, it was fun. It was like a, a stressful fun yeah. kind of thing. Okay. So anyways, where I'm, oh yeah. So move back at those two jobs and I save up for like three, two, maybe two or three months. Cause I'm like, I gotta go. I gotta go. I don't know why I was in such a rush. I look back and it's like, I could have like breathed for six months <laughs> to a year, but I was just like in this rush. Cause I feel like there were also a number of Syracuse grads out here. And I don't know what it was. There was just something that made me feel like if I don't get out there now, I'm going to get comfortable and I'm not going to go. So I saved up all of like $2,000, which at the time felt like so much money with all that money. And I stayed on the couch of a, a Syracuse friend. I think it was no Kathy Kasachi. She was out here. I was on her couch for a little bit and I had like 10 informational interviews set up with Syracuse alums. So going back to that, like being in and out of the alumni office mm. a year, I was just like, I like, I need to figure out what I'm doing with my life because it's no longer moving to New York City. That's where I learned about like the alumni database and like the sort of specific strategic way to like email alums. So in the two to three months uh, lead up to me moving out, I connected, I reached out to a bunch of people and I think all of 10 got back to me and I set up like 10 to 15 minute informationals with them. And so those first two weeks, like that's really what I was doing. I was doing those informationals and like, I think I was looking for a job and funny enough, telling you about my waitressing experience in Houston, I didn't realize that like waitressing in LA is like a whole different ball game. Like I moved here. I was like, Oh, I'll just like do what I was doing. He's like, I'll get a waitressing job, right. like save up enough for it. But like, I just thought I, you know, had it all figured out. And I showed up to, I don't remember which, how many I showed up to, but I, I showed up to maybe one or two interviews in like just a nice outfit, you know, maybe like a, just a nice blouse and jeans or slacks. And showed up to interviews where there were girls like dressed like they were going to the club with like their headshots and stuff. And like, that was my first wow. like LA lesson of like, Oh no, like waitressing jobs here aren't like, <laughs> you know what they were going with. Like, yeah. it's like either like aspiring actresses or you have to like have this, um, if it's not that, and it's like a proper restaurant, you have to have this knowledge of like wine, right. Which is, we don't have that in Texas. And so it was like, they you open the application and they like ask you all these questions about wine. And I was like, I've been waitressing for years. <laughs> so very, all I had to say very quickly, my like fallback of like how I've always been able to make like, you know, tons of pocket cash went away and the informationals were okay. But interestingly enough, you know, I mean, these were people that were like very successful and accomplished within their fields. I remember there was one I was super excited about. It was like an SVP of music at Sony who was a Syracuse grad that agreed to see me and a lot of their advice. And I am very appreciative of, of them taking the, the time to, out to see a stranger, but a lot of their advice was fairly generic. And I think I thought those informationals would lead to like a specific job lead, you know? So I was a little bummed about those. The last of the 10, remember I said I had 10 informationals, the 10th one actually turned out to be the lead to something. And it was I'll never forget. It was this this woman who I think she had just been promoted to like manager of development or something at ABC. Her name is Karen Dubiel. And she was so, uh, what's the word? Like she just had a day. Like when I went to see her, like you could just tell like homegirl had just had had a day. 
She probably forgot that she had this informational with this random, like, bright-eyed, (laughs) bushy-tailed, way too bubbly for, like, whatever day she just had. So, like, I'm trying to describe her energy, but, like, just, like, that's a good, I think, just sort of overview of, like, the energy I was stepping into. And so I go in and she's like, so like, you know, tell me like very monotone, you know what I mean? She's very, she's like, so like, what do you, what do, you do out here? So like, I'm bright eyed, but she tell like, I'm giving her my bubbly energy and she's like, okay, well, if you want to work in the industry, like, and I was like, I think I maybe want to write, but I also like want to learn about, I think I said like what executives do. Like I was all over the place clearly. And so she was like, okay, well, for as far as being a writer goes, this was at the time that pilot season was still the tried and true track for getting an assistant job right now. That doesn't really matter, but pilot season is usually typically from like January to April ish. I'd say now you can get a job year round, but that was when like, if you were trying to get an assistant job on a show, that was the time frame to like, want to be out here to angle in on that. I moved out here in like October of 2009. So I was like nowhere near that. So she was like, well, I mean, I would suggest maybe like as far as that goes, you'd have to wait it out a few months because nobody's really hiring unless you want to do reality or you could work at an agency if you would be up for that. I mean, I don't know if you would be up for that. And I was like, sure, like I'll do anything. Like I was just, she was like, okay, it's just a job, right? So first time ever hearing about, I didn't even know what an agency was. I probably like envisioned like, a CIA building in my head when she said that. I don't know what she meant, (laughs) but I was just like ready. I was like, what'd you say? (laughs) I would have done the same thing. Like whatever that is, cool. I'm picturing, yeah. You know, keep in mind also, this was informational interview number 10. And I was just like grasping. I was like, I need a lead on something. Right. So she was like, okay, well, I know this girl or she didn't say it like that, but she was like, there's, you know, someone at at CA that I correspond with. Like I'll send me your, your resume and I'll like, you know, send it to her. And that was that. And so like, the reason why I described her energy is because it was like the person who like turned out to be actually like, I think a fair, a fair portrayal of like what those jobs are versus the like live in the Hollywood dream folks that I'd met with before. I just think it's so funny that like, she's the one that ended up being the conduit to me sort of starting my path to, to agency work. So she, she reached out to that person, that person, passed my resume along to HR at CAA. And I got my first job in LA 2010 after four four months, I say four or five months as an assistant to a TV agent. So I guess in terms of like step-by-step, the specific steps that it took for me to like get started in LA, that's kind of the trajectory. But I guess going back to that, that woman's energy, (laughs) Karen's energy, I guess just in terms of like, spirit theoretically i I think i i looking back would would say i i have to owe how i navigated through a lot of my years as an assistant because working at ca was my first assistant job but i ended up doing various assistant jobs for the next six to seven years and i think something that and i've I've been talking to a lot of other aspiring folks who, who found me on linkedin and trying to go back to this time and figure out what really was the sort of x factor for me and I think that talking about Syracuse so much, the fact that I'm on this podcast with the two of you guys, the little you know network that was out here actually proved to be more a part of that than I think I realized. Because one, I will say one of the informationals that I, I thought wasn't 
wasn't really the fact of was, which was that this guy was like, so do you know other people out here? And I said, yeah, like about like 20 other Syracuse grads are out here. And he's like, wow. He's like, that's so much more than when I moved out. And he was like, what's great about that is as you guys sort of move up the ranks together, like you will be the ones to sort of help each other out or tell each other about jobs. Like that network is more so your key to success than, than I am. He's like, I know it's it's not going to make sense to you, but it is. And it didn't make sense to me. (laughs) But looking back, like it was like, I remember when I was at that assistant job, I got burnt out and had the look on my face that Karen had on her face. And I wanted to move on to something else. I think it was someone within that circle that told me about an opening. Where did I go after CA? Oh, Bruckheimer. But I think it like, it helped to have a network that like, cause I think Jackie was who was Jack? I think Jackie might have started at CAA. Yeah. And I think that we had another friend that like maybe dealt with them. But just to even have the network to like tell you what being an assistant somewhere else is like or tell you like, you know, where not to go. And I think once we were sort of moving within those ranks, like we have another friend, I'm talking to you guys, you know, our friend Nate, who spent so much of his early trajectory on the production assistant route and then suddenly decided he wanted to be an executive. The first people he sat down with uh, were myself and and two other friends in our community. So I'd say, interestingly enough, I think that having that, not realizing it at the time, but like sort of having that built-in network really proved to be helpful just in the sense that I think so much of the LA grind, my industry aside, I think most industries, but obviously entertainment industry is most dominant one out here is more survival of the fittest, I think, than it is talent or skill. That sounds, I hate how grating that sounds because not that talent and skill don't matter because they absolutely do. Yeah. But I think there is a survival of the fittest component where it's like, I, I want to say seven years in was sort of, I think maybe in a place where you were Tanuke, where it was like, I don't, I don't want to be a certain age getting coffee for, (laughs) you know, someone. Right. And I had sort of put a timeline out for myself. I was like, look, if, if X, Y, and Z doesn't happen within the next year, and for me specifically, so I'll be specific, if I'm not, if I don't have the opportunity to at least be in a writer's room as a writer's assistant, I'll take the assistant job again, but I just want to get in the room. Right, right. And if that doesn't happen within a year, maybe it's time to, you know, pack up and go back home and, and reassess because seven years is a long time. Oh, and it was, at the end of that seventh year, my luck finally started to change. And I, I got the opportunity to meet on a show that I ended up staffing on. But I will say, I don't know if this is helpful, but the one other thing I think that was pivotal in all of those assistant jobs was learning how to strategically ask for what I wanted. So I, I think something I lost sight of when I first moved out versus like once I got like in the hamster wheel of assistant jobs was... I was so like ambitious and just like on it when I first moved out. But that's because I was like on a couch, you know what I mean? I was literally sleeping on an air mattress, like feeling like I was taking advantage of my girlfriend's very kind hospitality. Like I was like that because I like needed to get out of this girl's living room. Right. But like, you know, once I got, you know, my little job that was enough to pay for a room <laughs> in an apartment somewhere, um, not to say that my ambitiousness went away, but it was like, okay, how do I apply that tenacity to moving out of this assistant level? And if you find jobs where you work for people that are like, I think you know, you're know you doing a really good job, like you, they, they give you that validation and that positive feedback, 
follow, usually in the industry, if they're good people, it'll be followed up by if ever anything I can do to help you, let me know. And I had a, a conversation with a friend sort of like when I was at my wit's end and all these assistant jobs where they were like, you have to tell the, like, if your boss says that you have to tell them how to help you, like they're not going to handhold it, handhold you. So if Daniel, at the time I worked for this prolific writer, Daniel Cerrone, who, who'd said that to me once or twice. And I was like, Oh, okay, thanks. And I just, I, in my head, I was just like, okay, he'll get his own show and he'll staff me. And my, this, uh, this friend who was another assistant going back to the, like, your network is more useful at, at your level than those above you. She was like, you can't, you have to be proactive and getting him to help you in that. Like if he's been a writer for all of these years on TV shows, I'm sure he's worked on a show where a colleague of his maybe has a pilot in, in contention. Like look at all of the pilots that are, are being ordered, like cross-reference them with the shows he's worked on and walk into his office and be like, Oh, I see so-and-so who you worked with on this Canadian show and <laughs> 10 years ago as this pilot would you mind, would you be cool reaching out and seeing if they're looking for an assistant? Or she was like, maybe even a writer, but this particular friend, I mean, she's hilarious, but she's like a very like gung-ho zero fucks East Coast Jewish girl. And so she would always do the next. I was like, Melanie, I'm not going to go in there and ask him to (laughs) ask this writer to staff me. She's like, you should have to ask. So she, yeah, so she like lit my fire and I did that for one pilot season. I asked him and he was like, sure. And it was one of those things where I was like, the shore came so easy, but I know the question, like he would have never done that on his own. So he reached out to a couple of writers. They unfortunately all were staffing their own assistants. And then the second year he reached out to a bunch of people and one person got back to him. And that person turned out to be my first boss on my first staffing show. So that was that kind of, I guess strategy <laughs> was also specific and pivotal. So I, I think the things that you find, you know, the sort of textbook, you Google how to become a TV writer in LA, like the things that you find still apply. Like you should be writing every day. You should be taking advantage of what's in the city to hone your craft. Cause obviously like getting your foot in the door is like requires one set of skills, but once you're there, you don't want to be there and, and not know anything about what to do. But I think the specificity of like, moving from job to job and and just what it means to last out here. That part also comes with, yeah, just like being strategic and the survival of the fittest thing. It's it's not going to happen. For some people, it it happens in a day. For others, it happens in, I shouldn't say in a day. For some people, it happens in a year. For others, it happens in seven years. The talent being the thing that makes you, I think it's a hard lesson to learn. That's not what advances people in this industry, unfortunately. It's important to have, but that's not all it takes. It's the staying power. Yeah. We love, that's like the story is everything. So I think people will really resonate with hearing all those steps so clearly stated. You mentioned, which stuck out to me, that the network, no matter how small, really came through for you. And you talked even from the beginning with Syracuse, like finding your community. Where would you say that your community really played the biggest role in your success? Like this whole time, like where, how did that help you? Did it hurt you? We'd love to know. It's interesting. My mind goes to this really like kind of sad memory. And, but I do think that it, it's important because when this thing happened, I think without this community, I probably would have thrown in the towel and moved home. So I'd say, so in 2013, so I was, what, 10, 11, 12, 13. 
I was four years into my time in LA. So four years on the grind. Mm. And my father, unfortunately, passed unexpectedly. And I think that without that community, because I'm, I'm remembering at the time, the job that I had was not a great job. I'm, I shouldn't say like that. The job that pay the bills is like, you know, it's nice to have on the resume. But as we know, for the ugly truth of industry jobs is that, you know, they can be brutal when you're an assistant. So that was one of the more brutal assistant jobs that I had when this happened. It was one of those things where it's like, I hate to say it like this, but it was just an easy out. Something like that happens. And it's like, it's understandable to just like go home and reassess. And I think because I had that community sort of in a way when that happened, you know, show up in a way that I, I wasn't expecting, you know, like in the sense that like, I'm, I'm a pretty guarded person. Mm. I know I'm the kind of person like that, you know, when you talk about unex- like the death of a parent and, and how people deal with grief and what that looks like when you're away from your hometown, there are people that can devolve and go in one direction. And, and I'm fortunately someone that I don't think I ever saw that happening, but it was one of those things where it's like, you don't want to be too cut off. When I think I, I, that was my instinct to just sort of like, I'm going to deal with this and just go from day to day. And, and there were some friends, actually, I'll say like Jamie in particular, who were just very like aggressive, I think in a way that I probably needed without knowing that I, I needed it because I am the kind of person who's like, I'm not, I don't want like my issues or my pain to, to become someone else's problem. And I think having them around at that time, it's, sounds esoteric maybe because it's like, how does one thing relate to the other? But I think that it helped me stay, you know, it helped me. Like, I think to have that, it was like, okay, I think I can get through this and I can still give this a go. And I also think, interestingly enough, in in another way, when you talk about like finding the silver lining and things, there was something about that event that I think sort of made me dig my heels in, you know, once I was sort of in a place with the grief where I could be my best self at work, it, I think I, quit that, ended up quitting that job maybe a, a few months after that happened, not just to quit, but it was just like, I'm not happy here. Like I keep saying, I want to be an assistant on a show. It's time to figure out how to be an assistant on a show. And so I think the combination of, uh, like I said, we talked about the, when that community showed up in a way they probably don't realize. I think it was that, that coinciding with, or that sort of being the precursor to what was me sort of being like, okay, let me get off this corporate track and focus on on trying to find my way on the specificity of the creative track. And I feel like looking back on it, that probably led to that. So they showed up in that way for sure. And yeah, I'm trying to think like, it's interesting. I think I'm weirdly in, in a space in my career now where those connections are also proving pivotal in, in specific ways. Like it's funny talking about Nate Nate is now an executive at at, at uh, Freeform, and yay! I pitched him a show last year, or him and his team a show. I mean, granted, he didn't buy it, so like, there's that. But it was still <laughs> interesting to like be able to have a conversation, you know, with someone the night before. Like, hey, like I've never done this thing before. Like, what should I expect? And he sent me like a four paragraph, you know, text where like stepping out like what it means to like what people are expecting to hear when a writer walks in and, and pitches a show. And while I, I mean, I didn't sell it to him, I, I was able to sell it to someone else. And I think having that, that targeted, having access to someone that can like give you targeted feedback, like that's a big way. Right. So it's like, yeah, they're, right. they're showing up maybe now since we're all sort of slowly getting to the, the places that we've been working so hard to get to. But yeah, in terms of the assistant grind and just like those dark days, 
that's the time. I think my dad passed, I'd say it was good to have that, that foundation. That makes total sense. I think that it almost sounds like, now I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like having an obstacle that deep and that, I guess you could say dark, because if it was me, that would be deep and dark. It's hard to process. And that could take a lot of time. It's, do you think an obstacle like that actually helps light the fire a little bit more that you you feel this incentive to actually work harder and to make more time for the relationships that you really care about having lost one that you didn't expect to lose? I mean, that's the thing. What's so interesting and eloquent about what you just said, Ali, is as I was telling the story just in this one, this is feeling like therapy. As I was like recounting... (laughs) It's healing. The podcast is healing. (laughs) As I was recounting the memory, like I think I came to that realization as I was saying it because I was at first I was focused on the fact I was like, oh, like I had this friend to like call me a car because Jamie was working at the Harvey Weinstein company at the time. And she's like, oh, she's like, I'll call you a car and take you to the airport, like whatever you need. And I was like, Jamie, it's okay. But I was like, okay. (laughs) So it was like, my mind was going to stuff like that. But looking back, if I were to like step away from like the specific things people were doing, I think you're spot on, Allie, because it's like, just to get specific with it, I mean, my dad, because you know, my dad's Nigerian dad who like did not understand right, right. what I was doing. And it's like, why aren't we doctors or lawyers or engineers? <laughs> exactly. And that's okay too. Doing that's fine too. But forging a new path takes a lot yeah. of guts and creativity. Yeah. yeah. So I think there was this part of me that felt like this can't be for nothing, right? Like I'll never know what that trajectory would have looked like had he lived. But it's like, once he passed, it was like, I can't like throw in the towel and give up on this now. And I don't want to say like prove him or, or other African family members. Right. But it's like, I think as you, just as you said, Allie, like it, I think it did, you know, light this fuse once I was on the other side of the grief where it was just like, okay, I mm. can do this. Like I, like I've got to try, I've gotten comfortable. It was, I had one of those that they call them golden handcuffs assistant jobs because it's like uh-huh. they just like throw more money at you <laughs> like the treatment doesn't change the abuse is still there but it's like they throw all this money at you and you're like well, I'm making all this money and I've got 401k and benefits why would I leave and so uh-huh. I don't see myself being someone that like stayed there for like super long had my dad still been alive but like I don't know if I would have been so quick to be like it's time for me to to chart a path out of here without that having happened. So I I do think there's something to that. I do think it made me sort of feel like I need to prove to the ghost of my father's disbelief that I could do this. So I do think that that probably factored in. But here's the other thing about, I'll specifically say my part of the industry or the writing part. What I'm learning now, I will say in terms of like, yes, I'm very fortunate to be a working writer who's, who's been able to work on different shows. And I, I think oh, as long as I continue to keeping what's at the root of, of my success, which is the craft, <laughs> always honing the craft, making sure that that's something I do, I think I should be okay and I'll continue to work. But it, there's something to be said about the ongoing sort of grind of, of our work. I, I had a friend, a writer friend a few years back say, people don't realize that most writers have cycles of their careers. And the cycles are usually one of three things. It's who is Janina Kabuka? And then there's, I think I know Janina Kabuka. And then there's get me Janina Kabuka. And <laughs> then, but then the cycle can repeat itself, right? Like that's the thing about TV. Like 
there's a time in which let's say, I don't know, we can go back to like the two thousands, you know, when like a certain kind of broad comedy was all the rage, right? Like you had your comedic writers go from the, who is so-and-so to the get me so-and-so. And now they're probably back at the, who is so-and-so like that, the cycle and mm-hmm. entertainment of constantly sort of that's interesting being on people's radar and then coming back around. It's like, you have to like, I am weirdly, I guess at a, at a point in my career where I'm trying to stay conscientious of that because it's very easy to be caught up in the like, okay, well, I don't want to say quote unquote have made it, but like, okay, I'm working writer. Like it's fine. And it's like, no, no, no. Like you want to always constantly be creating. Right. So I don't necessarily know what the sort of in front of the screen or the director equivalent of that. But for us as writers, I think in this world of social media, it's very easy to sort of be one, be distracted and two, get caught up in the fanfare of like the imagery. I shouldn't say the imagery, but like putting that sort of PR aspect to it before you need to be reading books and watching films and Mm. constantly generating material. Because at the end of the day, when the Nate Mullers and you know, all of those folks call to meet with you to want to develop ideas with you or, or hear your pitch. It's yeah. not, you know, how many shows you've worked on or how many followers you have or, you know, all of that. It's it's going to boil down to have you crafted a story that feels compelling and important and unique and... and Substance. Yeah. And so I think there's that part of the grind that I think that people should forget. And specifically as far as TV writers are concerned, because this is tomorrow's promise to no one. And, you know, like I said, we, you, that cycle is, is constant. And unfortunately there are people that make it to that, get me so-and-so it's only to fall back down to, to who is so, and don't come back from that because they've sort of written themselves into a corner, meaning they haven't made it a point to expand their craft. If you made your bread and butter writing procedurals, that's not where it's at anymore. Like you have to, to expand beyond that. So I'll say that's the other real of it. I'll, I'll put it out there. Yeah, that's awesome. I have one other question, but Tanuke, is there anything you want to say before I like open a can of worms? Yeah, I, <laughs> I just want to loop back and reflect on a couple of points, Janina, that you just shared so smoothly as you brought us through the trajectory of time that you've spent in LA. I think on the artist's front of camera side, I often heard pieces of stories that made it seem as though a person could gain spotlight overnight. Mm-hmm. And I think what I ultimately discovered was that an overnight celebrity often takes 10 years <laughs> mm. to get that status because it's a combination of voice lessons, acting classes, things behind the scenes that we don't see. And what I love about what you've described about your writer's journey is that the success that you've been able to now find in your career took seasons to sculpt and to rework. And I think it's such an important lesson that many folks who are choosing to enter this industry might not be aware of. So I'm so glad that you shared that, just these different twists and turns that you've taken to get to where you are right now. So I I love that you shared that. And I also think just knowing that um, you've been able to find a place where you can pursue the ask, right? Allie and I talk about this all the time. And I'm like, Allie, I need to get better at asking. And it's just, it's so great to hear someone say, hey, like I had to go for that ask. Like I had the talent, I had the capacity, I had the connections. And then that last little piece (laughs) was the ask because otherwise Mm -hmm. someone in our circle might not even know that there is a need. So I just, I love that you, you pinpointed those things. I think those who are listening, who are looking for and seeking specific ways to go about 
pursuing something as broad and as big as a career in the entertainment industry would probably benefit from hearing those things. And for some, it's it's instinctive. It's like, oh, duh, of course, an overnight celebrity takes 10 years. Of course, you have to ask for what you want. But there are also mm-hmm. a large percentage of people who are like, well, you know what? I think if I land in LA in a year, I should, you know, be the star of my own television show. And for some people, that's their truth. <laughs> right. But for many, yeah. many others, including those I've seen in our, our network of orange people, it's been marvelous and interesting to see the trajectory pan itself out. So much so that when you see someone finally share that tweet or share that Instagram post, like, wow, my pilot just got picked up, or I just signed on to work with this incredible agency, or look at this article I posted on Medium about what it's like. It's like, oh my gosh, look at this TED talk I just did. I'm like, wow, like, look at at these folks climbing, look at what the climb has brought them. And the last thing, and I'm definitely going to share Ali so that you can share too, is the notion of staying power. Yeah, no, we're good. Okay, cool, cool. The notion of staying power. Right. I think that is the key because there are plenty of people who can, and I've seen sitting across from me, belt higher and whistle just as clearly as Mariah combined with Aretha with a splash of Whitney. Mm. But it's not that the talent <laughs> isn't there. I kid you not. I've seen some of the most right jaw-dropping incredible vocalists of my life when I lived in LA I'm like how do you not have 10 why aren't you at the Grammys it's February go to the Grammys and it's just like I've been I've been in rooms with people whose talent is undeniable but it's just a matter of luck yes and perhaps staying power yes and perhaps having that supportive network to lift a person up when we deal with difficulty or tragedy or family loss or what have you and I love that you pointed out those things, Janina, because it isn't about talent sometimes being undeniably there. It's about saying, all right, well, I just got shut down again for the hundredth time. (laughs) Right. Maybe the hundred and first time will be the answer. So I, yeah, I love that. I love that. That's a really great point. And I'll just quickly say to that, I mean, something that's really interesting that, that also just off because I know Ali, you, you wanted to say something, Yeah. but let me just quickly say that something that, that made me think of is there is something to be said about the overnight successes, right? Like mm-hmm. God bless them. And I feel like if they have strong foundations around them, that that could be a launching point to something. But I do think, you know, looking back at, at all of the adversity in, in many different ways that we talked about that it took for me to get here. I think in the world in which if I am fortunate enough to, to be in a position to have a show or something like that, my the approach that I think I am able to take to it, having sort of been in the system, quote unquote, versus someone who is fortunate enough to, you know, have that script from the film that they shot for college and Sundance suddenly be turned into a television show. It's like, I don't think people realize that there's merit in you know, sort of having paid your dues and put in the time to work to know how to navigate that. Because Mm. I think something that I'm encountering a lot, and I think that we're seeing in the industry is a lot of folks that are going after those positions. And I think because there's a hunger and appetite amongst there being so many buyers in the marketplace. I mean, I think Facebook has a a network, IMDB, like all these people are, are producing shows. And I think for folks, it's like, well, why would I sort of put in the time doing this menial work at this level when I can just like go write this thing and, you know, go have my show. And when, and if that happens, the challenges that you face, like without sort of knowing how to navigate, I think just the, as we were talking about the survival of the fittest kinds of waters, it, it can be a pretty miserable experience. If any of that's making sense. I just, 
when you said the overnight celebrity of it all, it's like, and we've seen that in other variations as well. Someone that's sort of thrown in, thrown into the spotlight without having any experience. And so I do think that there is merit beyond like, I had to do it because I had no other choice, but looking back on it, it's like, maybe there are one or two jobs I could have done without, but I think looking back on it, it, it's important that I did those jobs to be able to sort of have this frame of reference. So I, I do think there's something to be said about working your way up. I totally agree. And I think that ties in what I was thinking perfectly, even to wrap us up, because there's something to say for like Tanuke was pointing out, your success changing over the trajectory of this entire career that you've built, like you've ended up writing, but it started with a vision you had before you graduated college that was totally different. And you go to New York City and you're like, oh my God, everyone's really mean, like screw this. And I think that speaks for how you have to treat the people in your network to maintain the relationships, to end up in that room with Nathan. Like you have to appreciate timing and you have to appreciate patience. And I think based on all of your experiences, we I would love, and I, I know Tanuke would love to hear like, how would you define both success as a whole from what you've learned and your own success? Like you have one that's bigger, that's not even the show that you're on, or is that your biggest success for you? in this present day? I think actually, Tunike, I think you, you said it very eloquently and I'll, I'll steal it and say it again, which is, <laughs> I think staying power, like my tenacity in terms of how that's sort of applied to um, how I've navigated both personal and professional issues and roadblocks and whatnot. I think the tenacity that, that one has um, or that's required when it comes to staying power is, is at least in my experience, has been the most important aspect of, of my success, I'd say. Because just as you said, Janika, like we like from both in front of the screen, behind the screen, for every Beyonce level sounding singer you know, I know writers that can outwrite me and I, I you know, you read them on the page and it's just like you're an incredible, amazing writer and you're this you've been the post production, you know, PA for the past six years. So it's like Talent matters, and it's it's absolutely something that one should aspire to make incredible and undeniable. But as far as this industry, and you know, and I know you said beyond the industry, I mean life in general. But like, I think that's been the thing that I can point to that's been the singular factor, probably. And I think Ali, as you <laughs> pointed out, in a way I never realized. Like, I think <laughs> my father's death may have been a catalyst to that in a way that made me hone in on that sooner than I might have without it. Wow. Man. Could you define success for people to like end your you're a perfectly eloquent writer convo that you helped us structure without <laughs> even knowing you did because you totally did? Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I I think success is never giving up. You know, it sounds so corny, but I mean I think that's what it boils that's down real. to. Yeah, it's just is not giving up on your dream. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Janina, thank you times a thousand. I love that you've shared such honest, sincere, very revealing just parts of truth and loss and growth and everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where can we throw to? Oh, I sound so professional. It's all the same. Just like where can we find your work or shows that you've done that we can watch where we can, you know, oh, sure. give you a shout out, anything like that. Sure. I most recent work Worked on a show called For All Mankind, which is on Apple TV Plus. That's a show worth checking out. Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, P Valley, Insatiable. I'm not super, I'm not like very social media savvy. So 
I have a Twitter account that it, it's like kind of political and that's uh, Janina underscore Anike. And that's about it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Seriously. Like I know b- both Shnuke and I were like so stoked to have somebody we already knew and loved on here. So it was really nice to have an excuse to hang out. <laughs> yes. No, this was great. So good seeing, seeing you guys and reconnecting and, and yeah, doing this. I like, it's a little therapeutic for me. So Thanks for the uh, <laughs> unexpected yes. uh, revelation. Thank you for sharing and your vulnerability and giving us all the truest words and just something to lead us into a good day. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. If you'd like to re-listen or hear more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and iTunes under the name Angled Podcast. You can follow us and get in touch with us on Instagram as well. Our handle is at Angled Podcast. Thank you so much. See you next time. What's your angle?